Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. On Friday, President Biden announced his nomination of federal judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. If confirmed, Jackson will replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. The move fulfills Biden's pledge to nominate the first black woman to the court. So what do we know about this historic nominee? For that, I'll hand things off to Can He Do That producer, Sharla Freeland. A Harvard-educated attorney who clerked for a Supreme Court justice and serves on the D.C. Circuit Court. This sounds like the pedigree of a typical Supreme Court justice nominee, but nothing about Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is typical. She's only a second-generation college student. She cut her teeth as a public defender. She's a woman, and she's Black. Since the Supreme Court was created in 1789, there have been 115 justices. Only two have been Black. Only five have been women. None have been a Black woman. President Biden's choice of Jackson fulfills his campaign promise to nominate the first Black woman to the Supreme Court. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. But Biden has made it clear that she's more than a diversity pick. For too long, our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. And I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation with a nominee of extraordinary qualifications. And Jackson will tell you that she's been working toward this job for practically her entire life. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. We were born exactly 49 years to the day apart. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. I'm Anne Marimo, legal affairs reporter for The Post. I cover the courts, and I've been following the career of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Anne has been looking at Jackson's personal and professional history to understand how her life up until now could shape her role on the court. So I've been following her on the district court, but because she was a candidate for the D.C. Circuit before the Senate um, just a year ago, there was a huge amount of information um, that was turned over to the Senate. So over a thousand pages of speeches and articles and appearances. So that's really a helpful place to start. And she's often called on by Black student law associations to talk about her path. And so we really started with her words. Ant's reporting starts with Jackson's earliest days. The future judge was born in Washington, D.C. in 1970. From there, her family moved to South Florida so her dad could go to law school. 
She says in many speeches, she's a child of the 70s. And as a young child, she talks about having her coloring books at the dining room table while her dad was studying for law school. It was my father who started me on this path when I was a child, as uh, the president mentioned. My father made the fateful decision to, trans, uh, to transition from his job as a public high school history teacher and go to law school. Some of my earliest memories are of him sitting at the kitchen table, reading his law books. I watched him study, and he became my first professional role model. She calls herself a Miami girl, and that's where she grew up, going to junior high and high school, and she's still very much in touch with all of those friends. She was the class president, elected three times, and still organizes the reunions, very much a child of of Florida and the Miami suburbs. She was definitely a bright star in high school. Was law always the plan, or did she have a different career path in mind? If you look at her high school yearbook, she was, again, the class president and really a a debate champion um, and part of what they called the Hall of Fame. And in it, it says that she hopes to have a career in law and a judicial appointment. So she was very focused and, again, says that seeing her dad studying for law school was really influential on her. (laughs) So she was really good at manifesting. I could probably take a few cues from her. (laughs) All of us. Yes. Very goal oriented. You mentioned that she refers to herself as the child of the 70s. Her parents were civil rights activists, and they expected her to be part of that movement as well. How prominent were her parents in the civil rights movement, and what did she learn from them? Well, her parents experienced segregation in South Florida and attended historically Black colleges and universities and came to D.C. uh, because of opportunities there. Um, And they started their careers as public school teachers, both of them. And they really expected their daughter to um, kind of reap the benefits of the civil rights movement and made sure she knew from a very young age that her path was clear if she just worked hard um, and was disciplined and that any opportunity was available to her. She went on to attend Harvard for undergrad and would go on to attend Harvard for law school as well. You wrote about a defining experience for her in undergrad when one of her classmates hung a Confederate flag from his dorm room window. Can you tell me that story and what was Jackson's reaction? So she was a freshman at Harvard and a new member of the Black Students Association living in a dorm around Harvard Yard with all of the other freshmen when, as you say, a classmate hung a Confederate flag outside the window. She joined the protests, the sit-ins, handing out flyers. But she also felt um, deeply concerned about this. She thought that while she was spending time protesting and making the university know that their response was not as robust as she had hoped, she was also not spending time in the library on her studies. And she felt like this was exactly what the classmate who hung that flag outside his window had wanted for she and her fellow members of the Black Student Association to be distracted. And that's something she talks about a lot the need to stay focused on your goal and not distracted, to recognize the reality when there are slights and you need to stand up for yourself, but also to stay focused on what she wanted to do. Was that a harsh reality, a harsh contrast from the idea that her parents planted in her head that her path would be more laid out because of the work that they did for her? 
I think she knew from a young age, even in high school, she talks about um, a guidance counselor telling her that she should not set her sights so high on Harvard. She talks about a drama club teacher who told her that she should not try out for a play because it was about a white family and she would not get a role. And she continued to try out for plays. She stayed focused and she was aware of, of the reality along the way. What did her work at Harvard as an undergrad reveal about her perspective on the justice system? What did she learn there about the flaws that exist within our justice system? Yes, so at Harvard, she had lots of diverse interests. Um, She also was involved in theater there, improv, but she, for her senior thesis for the government department, really delved deeply into the criminal justice system. She had spent a summer working for a public defender's office in Harlem and began to develop a sense of problems with the justice system, and in particular, the process by which defendants are sort of pressured, she said, into taking plea agreements instead of going to trial and airing all of the facts, and this really troubled her. So she did a a lot of research um, and came to the conclusion that there was too much pressure on defendants to take plea agreements. But in typical fashion, she also found sort of a a middle path and said, you know, the plea agreements are too much a part of our process to get rid of them altogether. And on that note, Judge Brown Jackson differs from other Supreme Court justices in that she spent two years working as a public defender. Has she spoken about her time as a public defender and how that shapes her legal opinions? She's had a really diverse legal career, um, spent time in private practice. She was a law clerk to three federal judges, including for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, the man she would succeed. But also, yes, two and a half years as a public defender. This is defending poor, indigent criminal defendants on the front lines. And this is a really unique experience. Not since Thurgood Marshall has there been a justice with really deep uh, experience. And that brings a different perspective. She understands um, what it's like to be on the other side of the government, um, the government's evidence, and how to try to defend these these clients and their rights. So she definitely took some alternative paths in her career compared to her colleagues or her potential soon-to-be colleagues. How did she climb the ranks of the justice system from becoming a judge through D.C. Circuit Court and now a Supreme Court nominee? So after um, working in the Federal Public Defender's Office in D.C., where she represented detainees at Guantanamo Bay um, and other criminal defendants, she spent time on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, the bipartisan multi-member commission that shapes federal sentencing policies. Um, And this was really formative as well. This board decided while she was a vice chair to retroactively apply lower sentences. And that meant that tens of thousands of federal inmates were eligible to be released early um, from prison. And I thought one of her most powerful um, speeches at that time, she talks about the disparity in federal sentences for people convicted on powder cocaine charges versus crack cocaine charges. It disproportionately affected African-American inmates. And she spoke powerfully about the need to get rid of that disparity and um, have less severe sentences. The decision we make today, which comes more than 16 years after the commission's first report to Congress on crack crack cocaine, reminds me in many respects of an off-quoted statement from the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Today, the commission completes the arc that began with its first recognition of the inherent unfairness 
of the 100 to 1 crack powder disparity all those years ago. How did she come to be on President Biden's radar? Yeah, so in 2012, after serving on the U.S. Sentencing Commission as a pick of President Obama's, he then asked her to serve on the district court, the trial court in D.C., and she spent eight years there handling a wide variety of cases involving criminal defendants, white-collar defendants, disputes between Congress and the president, and she wrote some major opinions there. Um, And it was after that period that President Biden tapped her um, just a year ago to serve on the really influential uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which has often been a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. As you said, she clerked for Justice Breyer. Do we know if that influenced her being a pick? Did he have a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge to Biden? I don't know that, but I know she considers him a mentor and he thinks very highly of her. Um, When she was first sworn in as a federal judge um, in 2013, he was the one who delivered the oath and talked about Judge Jackson and her ability to really see both sides. And that's what he said would make her a good judge. Justice Breyer in particular, not only gave me the greatest job that any young lawyer could ever hope to have, but he also exemplified every day in every way that a Supreme Court justice can perform at the highest level of skill and integrity while also being guided by civility, grace, pragmatism, and generosity of spirit. Justice Breyer, The members of the Senate will decide if I fill your seat, but please know that I could never fill your shoes. She will be making history. She will be the first Black woman Supreme Court justice, if confirmed. Does she feel a weight or a pressure, or is it more of an excitement? She was considered previously by President Obama, and I know her daughters were very young and excited at the time about that. But I know she feels a lot of pride in her family and her background. And and of course, to make history would be remarkable. There's more on how Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's past might shape her future on the court after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. The image of the Supreme Court as a non-political entity has been important to many of the sitting judges, but we're kind of starting to see a tide change on that. And with Jackson, are her personal politics going to bleed over into how she is as a judge on the Supreme Court? So yeah, she's definitely talked about problems with the criminal justice system that have been recognized widely. Um, The disparities in sentencing have been embraced on a a bipartisan basis. But I would say she's been careful um, not to take positions on things like affirmative action, for instance, um, when she's served on the board of Harvard to say, you know, I'm a sitting judge. These are issues that come before the court um, and I'm not going to state my personal opinion. And when she's been before the Senate in the past for confirmation hearings and they've asked her about various positions, she says, you know, I know what my role is as a judge and I can put aside any personal beliefs. They have nothing to do with how I look at the law and the facts. 
I want to talk a little bit about some of her appearances before the Senate. She sat down in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee for her confirmation to the D.C. Circuit Court. She was grilled by conservatives on the committee, but ultimately confirmed. Can we expect her to receive the same grilling this time around, maybe even more so? Yeah, I was pretty surprised. I watched a lot of confirmation hearings uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and this was one was pretty uncontentious for the D.C. Circuit, and she ultimately won support from three Republican senators, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. Of course, the Supreme Court is a whole different level, and so she will get even more scrutiny. But one of the reasons Democrats are trying to move so quickly here is because they still do have a slim majority and don't necessarily need Republicans. I think President Biden has made clear he would like to have bipartisan support for his nominee, but it's not necessary. Does she have any controversial rulings in her past that we can expect her to be grilled on? Absolutely. She'll be questioned about one of her longest opinions she wrote as a district court judge. This was a battle between Congress and former President Trump. Congress was eager to hear from Trump's former White House counsel, Don McGahn, and Trump went to court and said, no, um, you, you can't subpoena my top advisor. This was a battle that went on and on. And Judge Jackson said she sided very strongly with Congress's investigative powers and said presidents are not kings. And, and so I think you'll hear senators, especially on the Republican side, asking her again about this opinion. And speaking of opinions, she's known for her lengthy legal opinions. How did she earn that reputation? What's her approach there? Sure. Um, She's someone who's incredibly thorough, does her research, and wants to make sure all of the facts are laid out. And that has led to some criticism that her opinions are are too long. Um, But she's just trying to put everything she knows out there and to explain things thoroughly. She does care a lot about her opinions being easily understandable by the public. That's one thing she thinks about often about are her former clients, criminal defendants who didn't know a lot about the legal system. And so she's thinking about how can I explain this to a broader audience? I want to circle back to her personal life. What does that look like now? Her husband, her kids, extended family? Yes. So she met her husband as an undergraduate at Harvard. She talks there about their differences, uh, her family descendant from slaves and her husband, sort of a Boston Brahmin whose family came over on the Mayflower. But they they hit it off and stayed together through their many different moves for their careers. He's a surgeon now in Washington. They have two daughters, one 17, one 21, and they live in Upper Northwest D.C. One interesting fact that I found out while researching her is that she's related uh, by marriage to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. What What's their exact relation? OK, you might have to you have to fact check me on this because I always get it confused. OK, so I think it's that her husband's twin brother is married to Paul Ryan's sister. And so at her confirmation hearing to the district court, she was interviewed by then Republican Congressman Paul Ryan, who said, we have our differences politically, but I have no question about Judge Jackson's intellect and ability and ability to serve as a a judge. Our politics may differ, but my praise for Katanji's intellect, for her character, for her integrity, it's unequivocal. She's an amazing person. And I favorably recommend your consideration. Yeah, I think it's Paul Ryan's wife's sister is married to her husband's twin brother. Okay. Yeah, not not an exact relation. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I've read it many times, but I can't remember. (laughs) I am here to serve as a character witness. Uh, 
may not know this, but we're family uh, by marriage. Her in-laws, Gardner and Pamela Jackson, are here with us today. And her brother and sister-in-law, who are my brother and sister-in-law, William and Dana Jackson, are here with us as well today. Looking at her biography, her parents' influence, her childhood, her education, the rulings she's made in the past, what, if anything, can we learn about how she might make decisions on the bench? If confirmed, what kind of approach would she take? Sure. I've spent a lot of time talking with her former law clerks um, who've worked very closely with her and her chambers. And they say it's pretty easy. She always tells them, start with the books. So her office has pretty sets of U.S. code books, and they are not for decoration. She always says, start with the law, uh, then the facts, and um, then that's how she makes her opinions. I think she will be in the mold of Justice Breyer, someone who's on the liberal side, but potentially more moderate on certain issues. I think she will be more to the left of Justice Breyer, potentially when it comes to the rights of the accused and criminal defendants based on her time as a public defender. And if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. Thanks so much for listening to this bonus episode of Can He Do That? The show is a team effort here at The Post, produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh, with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.